Well, thanks very much, Jonathan. I really do appreciate uh, your allowing me the privilege of speaking at the pulpit today and the welcome of everybody. Greatly enjoyed the men the other night. It was uh, just terrific. See everyone crammed into that, that room, but a terrific group of fellows. And I think I, I know that my church, Hughes Baptist in Canberra, would want me to bring you greetings from them as both fellow followers of Christ and brothers and sisters in Christ, but also, of course, as fellow Baptists. And I know we're all in the Baptist communion very encouraged by what you do here at Wodonga. Wodonga Baptist is well known, and uh, I know that they want to pass it on. I too just want to pass on my thanks for the fact that you turned out in the way you did for the webcast uh, of Mr. Howard and Mr. Rudd at Make Account, because uh, churches right around Australia, 100,000 people doing that, everywhere right around Australia, really send a message to politics. And so I really thank you for supporting that and being part of it. I want to talk to you this morning about getting godly government. And uh, I do that in the realisation that we live, and I think you'd all agree, in a bit of a crazy world. We've essentially turned God's purposes for the world and God's model for the world on its head by our own greed and our own departure as people and as nations from God. If I just look at it, or I suppose it's well illustrated by a rather silly story, and that was of a group of scientists who were debating about whether they actually needed God anymore, and they decided, no, we didn't. And uh, they said, well, one of us better go up and tell him. <laughs> and so uh, they decided to draw straws. One bloke got the short straw, of course. There's only one way of getting there. And so he, uh, he ended up going up, and he said, well, God, he said, I've been sent up here to tell you we really don't need you anymore. He said, we're so bright now. We can do so much, he said, that you see this this piece of dirt in my hand. He said, we can actually turn that into a human being just like you did. And God tapped him on the wrist and said, no, no, get your own dirt. <laughs> but it's a good story, you know, because it illustrates. It illustrates our arrogance <laughs> that we feel that we can take what God intended for the world and we can redesign it our way and it'll all work better. I just look at a few examples of that. I look at this issue we have of abortion. I think we in the Protestant part of the church have been rather slow to take up with the vigour we should have the importance of abortion. And I thank our Catholic brothers and sisters for the fact that they have stayed true to this. But the reality is, the reality is that it's simply illogical to try to say that life begins at some point on what is a continuum from conception until birth. Just ridiculous. And yet we do. It's ridiculous that in one part of a hospital we're trying to save the life of a premature baby, while in another part of the same hospital we might be terminating a baby of the same age. Ridiculous. And yet that's where we've got to. I just grabbed my wife's watch here. I didn't want to wear it. The blokes would think nothing I told them on Friday night was true. <laughs> but I've lost mine. <laughs> well, I've not lost it, it's broken. <laughs> Another thing is uh, generosity. Would the world really be in the state that it is in terms of poverty if we, in the Western world, the Christian world, were as generous as God intended us to be? I really don't believe we would be. We, at the moment, I think, give about 0.35% of our gross national income. How's that rate next to 10% that Christ tells us as individuals to tithe? We're aiming to get to 0.77. <laughs> Terrific. <laughs> eh? That's not the sort of generosity God wanted. 
It's not the sort of generosity that's going to return the world to God's model of the world. I look at the model of family that Christ gave us. Christ gave us a family of a mother and a father because children need a mother and a father. They need the role model of a mother and father. They need the love of a mother and father. I'll always remember that as we uh, actually campaigned, we don't do many, many demonstrations, but we did in Canberra, and uh, we were campaigning against homosexual adoption. And one lady from our church whose husband had died when her children at an early age got up and she said, she said, you know, she said, I thought when my children died, uh, sorry, my husband died, that I could give my children all the love that they need. I love them that much. And she said, I have, but she said, what I realised was that I couldn't replace the father love that the father could get. And we know that not every marriage works out in the Christian family either. And there's sometimes good reason for that. But the reality is that we should not be ordaining a model which is not Christ's model, God's model, God's way in the world. And yet in two states now we have, for instance, IVF for single women. We're creating, we're going off with an object of creating a model of father-father or mother-mother instead of father-mother in a child's life. We have two states which accept homosexual adoption. We just had the first one. We're breaking down the family, and in many other ways. And yet this basic model of the family was a model that God put before us as the best way for children, the best way for couples, and we simply need to reseek it and to re-establish it. I look at euthanasia. I'd be very, very surprised if after the election, although there'd be very little talk before it, and we're trying to get in there and get the parties to say what their actual policy is going to be on it, but I'm sure that after the election, you're going to find another big push for euthanasia. And yet I look at euthanasia in the light of the fact that I have a father who's 93. He's one of those blokes who on the first day of World War II went straight down to Cairns, joined up and was sent off straight away. Why? Because dad's a fellow, like so many in our community, particularly our older people, who are there have a strong sense of service. And if someone said to my father, well, euthanasia is legal, Dad would go off and get himself euthanized. Why? Because of that same sense of service. He doesn't want to be a burden to anybody. What sort of society are we creating if we create that sort of expectation in our old? If we create an expectation in those who maybe have a disability of some type, that they're a burden on society. This is not the model that Christ gave us of compassion in our communities. Now, I don't want to say all those things uh, trying to whip you up in a fear, right? Because fear is not what we live by as Christians. We live by hope. And I've certainly lived by hope. But I do believe that the church has been, as all these things have been happening, has been flat, dumb and happy and sitting there on the side. You might find that term strange. It's a term from uh, SAS, actually. Uh, as military freefallers, we used to say that uh, because when you went out of an aircraft, uh, military freefalling, it's not like civilian freefalling, you've got loads of stuff on you, you've got your pack that you're going to carry for the next couple of weeks, you've got a rifle, you've usually got an extra weapon, uh, you've got loads of water if you're jumping in the uh, northwest, and so you get out that aircraft and you hardly walk to the end of the aircraft, and all you want to do is fall out there and get the weight off. And uh, the only trouble is, though, that you've got so much weight that if you try to fly, and you've got to fly because you've got to make sure, particularly at night, that you don't end up so under someone else's parachute in your group that you're jumping in when they open it. So you've got to fly. 
But the trouble is if you try and fly, you can get unstable very easily and go whoop, 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 whoop for 10,000 feet, which is a bit dangerous. <laughs> so people used to say that if you're scared, just go flat, dumb and happy. No one can see you up there. Just fall flat, dumb and happy. And it became a point of derision in the regiment. They say, oh, that bloke's flat, dumb and happy. He's not willing to get out and have a go. And really, that's what the church has been. In the face of all this, we've sat back for about 30 years and we've been flat, dumb and happy. And we believe in the Australian Christian lobby that Christ wouldn't want us that way. If you have your Bibles there, I just ask you to, to turn them to Isaiah 1 and we're going to look at verses 10 to 17. And as you turn to it, I'll just give you the context of this. We have uh, God talking through the prophet Isaiah to the two kingdoms. And he's saying to them, he said, it's got like Sodom and Gomorrah down there. He's saying, it's that bad, it's like Sodom and Gomorrah. And we take the reading up from verse 10. And God says through Isaiah, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of, your, of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals, I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you appear before me, who's asked this of you, this trampling of my court? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Why were their offerings meaningless? Because all around them was like Sodom and Gomorrah. They weren't impacting this world around them. They were simply meeting in holy huddles. And so God said, stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. Your new moon Sabbaths and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. Why was he weary of bearing their occasions? Because all around them was like Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, if God said this to these people, I can't help but think but say that he, that he would say to us, Stop celebrating my holy days, because that's what they are. They're not holidays. My holy days of Christmas and Easter when all around you is like Sodom and Gomorrah. Don't you think he'd say that to us when he said this to these people? I think he would. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless and plead the case of the widow. I must say when I first started out on this about six years ago, I used to go around the country and I'd find a lot of people would challenge me all the time, you know, should the church be involved in politics? That doesn't happen so much now. But, but those or for those who have a lingering doubt about that, just look at those first two lines. Defend the cause of the fatherless. You know, we as a church and as individuals, we can do a lot for the fatherless. We can give them of our charity and our tithe. But if we want to defend their cause, there's only really two places, to my knowledge, that you can do it. It's in the law courts of the country or the parliaments of the country. You look at the second one, plead the case of the widow. In the same way, we can do lots for the widow through our generosity and tithe. But if we want to plead her case, then we plead a case in the law courts of the nation or in the government of the nation. But of course, you know, it's not our fault, is it? It's the politicians' fault. We all know that. We're Australians. 
But see, it's not good enough for God because we go back there to verse 10. And God says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. So God is definitely going to hold the rulers to account. No doubt about it. But then he says, listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now just think about this for a moment. God is talking here to two kingdoms where the people at the bottom of the pile would have almost no effect on a king. Imagine someone going up to the king, you know, and, and trying to tell him what to do. Sure, they had audiences, but your ability to influence what the king did would be very limited. And yet still, God held the people of the two kingdoms responsible. How much more would he hold you and I responsible? One man, one woman, one vote. I think he'd hold us a lot more responsible because we put our kings in place. It's interesting to know that I had this 32-year uh, career in the military and Phil rightly asked me, you know, how's that relate to politics? Well, I can understand, having been a soldier, why so often in the Bible God uses, and certainly Christ and Paul use, the analogy of the battlefield, the analogy of the soldier's life in trying to illustrate what we need to be as Christians. As I look at that analogy of the battlefield, I can tell you that no commander goes on to a battlefield without a plan to influence or hold the high ground. Because if you go onto a battlefield, even today with all our technology, if you go onto the battlefield and allow the enemy to control the high ground, then that's a recipe for defeat. Because he invariably holds the initiative. He'll run you around. You'll never, ever win a battle if you allow the enemy to hold the influence over the high ground. And you know the high ground in our nation is government. The high ground in our states is government. And while this, this ministry, this area of ministry into government will never be as important as changing the world from the bottom up, never be as important. It's changing hearts. It's absolutely the most important. I don't believe for one moment that we as the people of God, we as churches of God can afford to not also be bringing influence to bear on that high ground. So important is the high ground on a battlefield that you always support the people on the high ground as a number one priority. The Russians carried this to such an extreme that they would just leave everybody else devoid of support, even if it meant they died, to support the people on the high ground. In Western military tradition, we're not quite that brutal. But nonetheless, we always support the people on the high ground. I once went into the parliament, I'd gone into a fellow's uh, office, a senator, he'd always invited me just to drop in and I did and uh, it was just after he had actually stood up against his party's line uh, on something from a Christian perspective. It was on IVF for single women actually and I, uh, I went in to congratulate him, we'd already sent him a letter and he had our letter as it turned out, just a God thing you know, on his desk. And he's looking at it and he said to me, he said, you know, all I usually get from Christians is hate mail. Isn't this amazing? He said, he said, the party does something they don't like and I get the hate mail. And I thought, boy, we're going to make sure you keep getting love mail, you know, because we're going to support our champions on the high ground. I went then, the very next meeting I had, to someone else and she said, you know, when we walk into the party room, see, things are actually decided in the party room. They're not decided on the floor of parliament very often. They're decided in the party room. She said, when we as Christians go into the party room, she said, it's not a case of, uh, of not being listened to. She said, we don't even usually get a chance to speak 
because she said, nobody believes there's a constituency behind us. And I thought, boy, the second thing the Australian Christian Lobby is going to do is going to make sure when Christians and people of Judeo-Christian values supporting them go into their party rooms, that everybody looks at them and says, we've got to listen to this bloke or this lady because she carries a constituency behind, us, behind her. And so the Australian Christian Lobby is sent out to do that, to support our champions on the high ground because the high ground is important in a battle. Second thing which is really important on a battle is that you fight with the right weapons. Those of you who remember the Vietnam War will remember the great criticism of Americans in particular that they, instead of getting into the jungle in what was a guerrilla war, they, got in, they didn't go so much into the jungle, uh, which the Australians tended to do more, but rather they tried to win a guerrilla war by firing uh, shells from ships, by dropping bombs, and it's what in the, in the military profession we call playing hockey while the other bloke's playing chess. You can't beat a bloke at hockey if you go off and play chess. You've got to go there and play hockey. It's about applying the right weapons. Now, if this really is a spiritual battle that we're in, and I firmly believe it is, and we're told in Ephesians it is, if we're in a cultural battle which is a spiritual battle, then we have to apply the right weapons. And if the church decides to step out of this battle, and it is a spiritual battle, then who applies spiritual weapons? Who brings the spiritual weapons of prayer and faith to bear in the spiritual battle if the church has gone off and left the battle and refuses to fight it? I believe that the church has to be involved in this because it brings the right weapons. It brings the weapons of faith. And the other thing is that uh, having been a soldier, of course I've studied military history. And I know that no army has ever, in my knowledge, won a battle unless it believed in itself. And if we just look at this army of Christ for a few moments and we do what we would never do and we take Christ out of it just for a few moments to look at its natural advantages and we look at the fact that 64%, I think it is still, of Australians say they're Christian. Now, you and I know that doesn't mean they're all saved, of course. But I think what it does mean that we can be a lot bolder as the church that we should realise that these people empathise a lot more with the message the church has to bring on social policy, on public policy, than we think it does. And if we simply step up there and speak it, then we'll find there's a resonance there. A lot more resonance and empathy than we think. In addition to that, you know, the church every Sunday meets like this right around the country. I understand it's close to a million people meet like this between about 6.30 in the morning and about 6 at night. And the reality is that no other constituency in Australia meets like that with that regularity, can get the messages out, can actually activate itself like this constituency can. But of course, all that's really for nothing. I think it's important to realise, give us confidence, but our real confidence is in Christ. And I think that one reason that the church has exited from this particular battle is a failure to believe that we have a big God, a big God. I learned this very much as a UN United Nations observer in Lebanon. I was uh, doing this job, which is not a really smart job to do because you're an unarmed observer in the middle of everybody else's war and uh, your jobs are to go and run like an umpire 
You sort of have to blow the, the whistle and, and hold up the yellow card in the middle of a gunfight <laughs> and say, okay, fellas, time's out, time out. And uh, so you can be seen, they put a big blue beret on your head so that uh, in case they get sick of shooting at each other, they can have a pot shot at you pretty easily. It's a dumb job. Well paid, though. <laughs> but a dumb job. But not being able to get the other, I was doing this. And one of the jobs in southern Lebanon was, as I said, to adjudicate between who was fighting that day. Um, but another job was also to go out to the Palestinian refugee camps where I was located in the middle of uh, in an old French fort with a, a half platoon, 15 uh, UN armed soldiers protecting us. And we had to shoot out and report on the bombings or shellings of the Palestinian refugee camps. Now, this isn't a comment on the rights or the wrongs of the Middle East. Very complicated. But that was part of the job. And uh, we used to go and uh, see people like the Red Crescent, the Red Cross in our, uh, in our sense. And uh, we would go to see them because they knew where the bombings had occurred, if we'd missed them during the night in particular, or where the fighting had been during the night, because we didn't really go into these places unless we knew that we could actually have effect. And uh, while we were in there talking to the Red Crescent, a couple of shells landed in a nearby refugee camp. And I heard them take the message on the radio. It was in Arabic, of course. And so when they came off the radio, I said, what's happened? They said, oh, well, two shells landed in this refugee camp. They said one shell killed an old man, one shell hit a car in which a mother and a daughter were travelling and killed the mother and daughter. And knowing that we had to report it, they said, you come with us and you can see it and report it. And we said, oh, no. We said, we'll go in later. Now, the reason we went in those circumstances in later was because we couldn't change anything. And if you've ever seen, as I'm sure you have on TV, an Arab funeral, these are very emotional deals. People raving and ranting and a uh, lot of emotion in the air. And if you can be in any way remotely associated with the reason for the death, you don't go anywhere near it. And uh, so I said, no, we won't go in. They said, no, no, you come in with us, they said. You, if you come in with us, you'll be safe. Now, it's like me saying to you, I'm from Canberra, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> but anyway, I foolishly did. <laughs> and this other UN fellow and I hopped in the little UN vehicle. We uh, went in behind their ambulance into this refugee camp. As we got in there, 1,500 people, angry people, came around the car, uh, jostled us out of the car and uh, jostled us up to a meeting hall in the middle of the camp. And as we're going up and I was being jostled up the steps of this meeting hall, the car in which the mother and daughter had been killed was off to the left-hand side and uh, just near the steps. The bodies had been removed, but it was only 20 minutes later and the blood was still on the car. And a young boy, about 14, I think, came and grabbed me by the sleeve, pulled me down the uh, steps and pushed my, my hand into the blood. And he was clearly saying, this is your fault, mate. You stopped us going in there, but you don't stop this happening to us. And we, we were jostled into the uh, meeting hall, and the meeting hall was, uh, I suppose, about so big. And around it was, as you find common in Arabic uh, meeting halls or meeting places, there was a low concrete uh, sort of seat. And there were about 30 prominent men of the, of the refugee camp were sitting there, uh, playing with their worry beads. I felt like asking for a set of the worry beads if they didn't mind at that stage. Uh, and off in the corner uh, out there in a small room was a group of 10 men deciding whether or not they'd execute us in retribution for what had happened. Now, when you're 28, 29, you can beat the world, can't you? And when you're 28, 29 and an SAS captain, as I was, 
uh, you really think you can beat the world. <laughs> and if this was one of those kids' games, you know, I would have just leapt up, there's only 1,500, leapt up, flattened them all and walked out of there. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> but it wasn't a kids' game, it was real. <laughs> and uh, there was nothing I could do. Nothing I could do except appeal to this big God. And as I sat there, I remembered verses in Isaiah, and I'll ask you to turn to Isaiah 40. And uh, these verses, uh, obviously to me, are pretty important. But I think they're verses which we as Christians need to have there in the back of our minds in every situation in which we find ourselves. Because they're images that remind us that our God is a big God. And we need to be reminded of that. And it says in Isaiah 40 verse 12, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breadth of his hand has marked out the heavens. Don't you love that one? Every year the scientists tell us more heavens. God says, doesn't matter, <laughs> got them all. <laughs> eh? This is a big God. Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains in, the scale, in, in scales and the hills in a balance? This is a big God. As I appealed to that big God there that day, um, I also learnt another lesson. And that was that uh, God didn't send in legions of angels as he could have. He didn't send in the SAS regiment as he could have. But instead he changed hearts. Yeah? And God often works in ways we don't see. But it doesn't diminish how big a God is. How powerful a God is. And we need to take more courage in the fact that we have a big God. In the Australian Christian Lobby, as I said, we believe that this is a battlefield. I don't say that because we're planning to bring the force of arms into it. But I, we believe that just as on a battlefield, you have to bring strategic effect into a battlefield. That this cultural battle that we're in requires strategic effect brought into that high ground. We work greatly on relationship because you can't hope to influence anybody unless you've got a relationship with them. We work greatly on credibility and maintaining our credibility as a voice for Christ because we can't hope to bring our voice into the public domain and hope that we can have effect unless we're maintaining our credibility. I'm not here because I want you to give us money, but I am here because I really hope that you'll join in this vision. Because politics understands numbers. And our vision is to see Christ's or Christian principles accepted and influencing the way that we're governed, we do business, and we relate to each other as a community. And we can only affect the public policy that describes that if we have a constituency out there which people look at and say, yes, we've got to listen to it. You can join the Australian Christian Lobby for nothing on email. You can join it for $10 a month. A million dollars a month, if you'd like to, would be nice. <laughs> but if you haven't got email, you can join for $30 a month. We need it to be $30 a year, sorry, $30 a year, uh, just to get our stuff in hard copy form. But I would, would really encourage you that we need to bring, continue to bring, along with the other ministries of the church, continue to bring our influence into this high ground. Of course, the really important thing is, is for you, is, is God's anointing on this. Let me tell you, when we were planning that, uh, that webcast the other day, we uh, had a meeting with the people who were going to provide the technical 
part of the webcast. And uh, we were trying to find out what it would cost, what, what we need to set up. You're not, you can understand, I think, the complexity of getting this thing right around Australia and the cost. And they gave us the bad news that it was going to cost us $20,000. And we said, wow. <laughs> and uh, I went away thinking, boy, well, we're going to do this, but not really knowing how. And then next day, as I was in my yard, I got a telephone call from a fellow, an expatriate Australian in England. I've only met him once. And he said to me, he said, look, I was sitting in a London taxi and he said, God told me you needed some money for something. He said, uh, he said how much do you need? And I said, well, <laughs> I told him, I said, we met with these fellows yesterday, we, we actually need $20,000. Thinking he might say, well, I'll give 2000 or something. He said, that's the amount that God told me to give you. Eh? So we have great faith that God's anointing is on this ministry. And I think that's the final test for you. I suppose the other thing is, is it effective? Well, when we can get together, Mr. Rudd and Mr. Howard, on one night for the first time in political history to talk to the Christian constituency, when they've never done that for any constituency, I think you'd agree it's reasonably effective. And that's only a, a pot shot. You'll see in the groceries you've got there handed out to you that we've, in fact, uh, affected much legislation in Australia. So I hope you'll, you'll believe with me that there is a need for this ministry, that we do need to influence government for Christ. I just remind you that uh, the devil is good at taking away our motivation as Christians to do this or do things for him. And if you're convicted of that as a vision, I'd really ask you to act on it. You know, the devil had a passing out parade once and he's uh, got his, all his little devils lined up and uh, they're standing there just like they do at Duntroon. I don't like using that analogy, being a graduate of Duntroon. And the devil went down to the first, little, uh, the first little devil he had there on parade and he said, well, he said, what are you going to tell the world when you get out there? He said, I'm going to tell them there's no devil. Ah, the devil said, waste of time, waste of public money. What have we done? He said, of course they're going to know there's a devil. They've only got to look at Iraq and Afghanistan. Only got to look at the poverty in the world. Out of my sight. Went to the next place. He said, well, what are you going to tell them? He said, well, he said, I'm going to tell them there's a devil, but he said, I'm going to tell them there's no God. And he said, oh. Out of my sight, waste of time again. He said, of course they're going to know there's a God. They've only got to look at the love in a family. They've only got to look at nature. Of course they'll know there's a God. So he went to the third bloke who'd been listening to all this, and he said, well, what are you going to tell them? He said, ah, oh, well, he said, I'm going to tell them there is a God and there is a devil. I'm going to tell them there's no hurry. And the devil said, you're my man. You're my man. And how true it is, you know. So I'd really encourage you that if you feel convicted of the vision to influence this high ground for God, that you actually go out of here and do something about it. With us, with someone else, it doesn't matter, but do something about it because we have to influence this high ground for Christ. It was interesting, I received an email once and uh, it was evidence to me that other people do actually plan agendas and uh, this email was after your passing of your racial and religious vilification law down here some years ago. And it was from someone who purported to represent the homosexual lobby. And it said to me, he said, how disappointed you must be. Devastated, he said, how devastated you must be that this law has passed through the parliament which will um, allow uh, us, I mean the homosexual lobby, uh, us in time uh, to be able to uh, avoid discrimination and in time to be able to have a marriage in the federal parliament. And uh, I was glad he told us that because we were able to block that some years later. But uh, then he went on to say, he said, next is West Australia. 
And he said, we've uh, got uh, legislation. He ran through five pieces of legislation. He said, we've got them all ready. He said, we've got Labor, Greens, all agreed on it in the upper house. And he said, it will happen. And he said, oops, you will have failed again. And sure enough, in just five months' time, those pieces of legislation went through West Australia. And then at the end of it, he said to me, he said, he said please reply to this email. He said, it's the Christian thing to do. <laughs> and I thought, I'm not going to reply to that. But then I decided I'd better. And so what I said was, I said, God bless you. I said, let me tell you that before God, your sins are no greater than mine. But they are sins. And the, and the wages of sin is death. But Christ so loved the world that he gave his only son, that ever who believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I said, no, I'm not devastated. Because Christ has won the victory. And we only have to stand up and claim it. But I say to you, we have to stand up and claim it. God bless you. Thanks, Jim. It's a, a great ma message and a real challenge for us, isn't it, to uh, really now act. And um, you did get in your news sheet as you came in information about Australian Christian Lobby, yeah? We've got heads nodding there. <laughs> great. And it'd be great just to sign up for that and to see how we each can support and be part of keeping up with what they're doing. I just feel like you're a very uh, special person in terms of, uh, you know, your Australian Christian lobby and strategic for our country. And we want to, you know, do... Uh, uh, we, I, know, I hear your heart for Christians mm. to really make their voice known. So why don't we just pray for you at these Thanks moments. very much. Mate. God, thank you for the Australian Christian lobby and thank you for Jim Wallace. And thank you for using him to speak to us today. And we pray that as he continues to represent us that we would not just sit back and let him do that but that we would show our support as well god we pray that the uh, politicians would realize that there is uh, a constituency that are passionate about christian values and god we pray that uh, the activities of the australian christian lobby and all other christians who voice their uh, concern uh, would make great difference um, in this nation and god we thank you for jim's trust in you and your power and your strength and realising that this is not something that we do on our own, mm. but you're a mighty God mm. and we look to you right through that. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Mate. Thanks, Thanks, Jim. <laughs> Thank you.